Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Hello there and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined as always by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's up, Wolfon? Conference finals in full swing. Long weekend coming up here for those of us in Canada. Americans will get it next week. We uh, we see the light at the end of a tunnel of another long season, but there are still four teams playing now, so we're going to talk about them. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, we we have whittled the field down, and like I said, coming in, I, I feel like I could see any of these four teams winning the championship, but we, we can get into talking about this with Golden State and Dallas because I feel like Dallas, you know, we could have said the same thing last round after the first two games against Phoenix, and it seems like maybe this is a team that needs to feel out a series a little bit and make the correct adjustments before they really get a matchup played on their own terms and at their own tempo. But uh, I think even though, you know, one of the series is one all, I feel like we can say that so far, in the, the three conference finals games that we've watched, it, it's felt pretty decisive in one direction. So, yeah. sorry. Well, I will say, too, yeah, with, with what you were saying there about Dallas kind of feeling it out as the series goes on, I completely agree with you. And I think Kidd and his staff and Sweeney, who we talked about last game, they, they definitely have proven that over the course of a long series, they can come up with defensive game plans that do change the course of the series. But I'll also say and I, I talked about this a little bit on last episode, is, you know, that Phoenix series, as much as Dallas did a tremendous job switching up their defensive game plan and really stymieing Devin Booker, they don't get the opportunity to do that if Chris Paul doesn't look as cooked as he did over those last five games, which, you know, there we are, I don't know if he admitted it or it was just a report right now that it, he suffered a quad injury in game two or three. But the point of it is, is that him being in the condition he was, whether hurt or otherwise, over those final four or five games, also made it a lot easier for them to game plan against Devin Booker and for them to kind of feel their way into that series, I guess. And as I was talking about last episode, barring you know some sort of unfortunate injury or something happening with the Warriors, I think they're much better equipped to keep the Mavs from solving them in the same ways. So while I agree with you that I do think they'll feel themselves out as the series goes on, and they're, they're going to be better than they were in game one, I'm just not sure they can do to Golden State what they did to Phoenix and Utah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have pointed out, rightly so, that it's a much different challenge going from defending the Phoenix offense that is very predicated on high pick and roll. And it's not like Phoenix doesn't have weak side action in their offensive system. But I mean, I mean a lot of it is, I guess, it's maybe a little bit more predictable. And a little bit more constant, like they don't change things up as much. And there's a little bit less randomness in how they play. Like the weak side stuff 
is maybe easier to solve because it's a lot of basic sort of shake action where they have the one weak side shooter who's lifting from the corner to the top and, um, you know, some weak side exchanges, but not uh, all of the random screens and cuts that the Warriors are going to throw at you. So I get that. But, you know, I, I don't question their ability to sort of solve this, maybe not solve it, but like figure it out at least to a greater extent than they did in game one. And like Phoenix was a way better offense than Golden State all season. Like Golden State was a below average offense this season. And I think what we've seen throughout the course of this postseason is like Golden State is, I don't know about schemable, but we have seen over the course of a series, their offensive efficiency decline. Like teams get a little bit shell-shocked playing them, I think, in the first couple of games where there's an adjustment period, they struggle to figure out how to defend all of that motion and all of the weak side activity. And then as the series goes along, those teams start to get a better handle on it. So like they came out and blitzed the Nuggets in the first couple of games of that series. And by the end, I feel like the, the Nuggets had a much better handle on how to defend them. And I think the same thing happened in the Memphis series. And I think we're going to see something similar probably in this series against Dallas. Uh, but we can get into this in a little bit more detail. So the way that I wanted to structure this was just, we can go back and forth with basically the biggest takeaways that we have from the three conference finals games that we have seen so far. So I think we're going to have one each from both series and we'll see. I mean, hopefully we don't have any overlap, but... Uh, I'll, well, I'll if we do, it. it'll be a shorter pot. Well, there you go. Uh, I, I will kick it over to you. What's What's the biggest takeaway that you've had from the conference finals so far? Okay, so I'm going to start with Mavs Warriors just because it's the game that's going to be played on uh, Friday night. So if you're listening to this, it'll give it'll be the it'll give it the longer shelf life from the beginning <laughs> of the episode until the end of it. But um, and it's going to be that not surprisingly, really, for anyone that's followed this team all year, that so much of this series, as much as we talk about all the stuff with the Warriors and the off ball movement and the deception and how it's going to be tougher for Dallas to f- solve that uh, in comparison to defending Phoenix and Utah, for me the biggest takeaway after watching it twice now, even on a rewatch, was still that so much of this series, or at least whether the Mavericks can hang, is going to come down to shooting variants, okay? Hmm. We have spent countless episodes this season talking about how snake-bitten the Mavs were by bad shooting luck early in the season. To their credit, they stuck to the game plan. They, They did not deviate from going heavy on three-point shooting this season. And by the end of the year, they were rewarded with positive regression to the mean, which was also aided by the fact they turned Kristaps Porzingis into Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. We know all this. They The three-point shooting variants ended up helping them as the season went on, and especially in the playoffs, it was a big part of how they beat Utah and especially Phoenix. Now, in this first game against Golden State, they take 48 threes. And they only make 11 of them. And in real time watching it, I wasn't really that concerned for the Warriors because in real time watching it, even as I was making notes, I made a note of the fact that, especially early in the game, I thought Dallas's best looks were actually just coming off of offensive rebounds and you know the scrambles that happened because of them. And that in terms of like first shot defense, I didn't think the Warriors were surrendering too many great looks to three-point shooters for the Mavs. And then same thing later in the game, the Mavs started getting some better looks, but it was in blowout territory already. So the note I had made watching it in real time was Mavs getting up their three-point shots, but not many of them are well produced. Like it didn't seem like the kind of thing where it's like, well, the Warriors are getting lucky. When I sat down for a, re- a quick rewatch yesterday, my mind was changed a little bit 
And I actually thought there were a lot of times in that first half, especially where the Warriors did get pretty lucky, even off of first chance opportunities, where the Mavs, I thought, did produce some pretty good looks within the natural flow of their offense, not just off of offensive rebounds, which is another matter. And then, you know, the shot quality uh, numbers start coming out the next day. The uh, NBA.com stats come out the next day. Now, I, I have seen some debate here because the second spectrum numbers apparently don't match what, uh, I guess, it's is it Synergy that provides it for NBA, NBA.com? I'm not sure. But anyway, so NBA.com has it as of the 48 three-point attempts the Mavs got in game one, 28 were considered wide open and another 16 were considered open. Only four of the 48 were considered either tightly contested or very tightly contested. Now of the 44 open or wide open shots from three that Dallas took, they only made 11 of them. Okay. This is a team that shot 35%, pretty much league average from three during the season. And then 38.5% through the first two rounds of the playoffs. So if they even just shoot around their averages in this game, and you only look at the first shot opportunities, I took the, the offensive rebounding away out of it you'd still be looking at them getting an extra 15 points from the three-point line based on the looks they got in game one. And again, that's off a game where in real time I was saying they're actually not getting that great looks. And two days later, I'm sitting here being like, they probably should have got an extra 15 points. And that now you're looking at within 10 points. Like, it, it's just such a different game. There's no garbage time. Obviously, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, But I... Picked the Warriors, I think in six, seven. I can't remember. I think it was in six. And I'm sticking to the war. Like, obviously... They, for the most part, I thought dominated that game and they did separate themselves. And I do still see them coming out of this series. But I think you had Mavs in six or you were leaning Mavs in six. And as strange as this is to say, after game one was just a 23-point blowout, I'm actually coming out of that game feeling a little better about the Mavs process after watching it a couple times and thinking that... I do see the path to them staying in the series. And it's literally like if that if that game plays out a few more times, they're winning at least one of them because those shots are falling in some of them. Luka will be better. I think the Suns did a uh, Suns. I think the Warriors did a good job attacking Luka defensively, also pushing the pace to get him tired. Don't forget the Mavs are coming off of game seven. Warriors had two extra rest days plus home court advantage. Like a lot was working against the Mavs. They didn't hit their shots. Warriors played phenomenal, but I I can see the path there to the Mavs hanging. And yes, it's simple to say, well, the path is just they hit their shots, but the shots they created were actually better than I thought or assumed on first watch. And if they just continue to kind of play that game, the shooting variants will keep them in, or at least has the potential to keep them in it. I don't want to oversubscribe to the whole shot quality thing, but shot quality's Twitter account did tweet out that uh, before the game, like in, entered official blowout territory, you take or sorry, take the uh, take garbage time out of it, and entering garbage time, the shot quality score was Warriors ninety nine, Mavs ninety seven. Yeah, but don't you think the Warriors are a better shot making team than the Mavs are at the end of the 100%, day? Hundred percent, and that's why I'm saying I'm not like I'm. I still so think the basically be- if they're basically dead level in shot quality, then I would hundred percent kind of advantage Warriors. 100%. I just think that the the 23-point margin of victory, I think at one point it was close to 30, I think skews a little bit how that game actually went. Because I think if the if the Mavs shoot anywhere near like they're capable of shooting in that first half or even early in that second half, that game's not in garbage time. 
Yeah, it's funny because I think that I had sort of the opposite take that you had, which is when we were teeing this up on our last episode, I did say I was basically caught dead center between Mavs and Six or Warriors and Seven, but that gun to my head, you know, I was leaning ever so slightly to Mavs and Six. And I think, contrary to you, I am now feeling like maybe it's easy or obvious to say now that the Warriors won game one in blowout fashion, but I think that game made me kind of jump back in the opposite direction and feel more confident in the Warriors. And I can get into why a little later, but I want to throw a little Warriors level randomness into this and and jump us over to the other series and then come back to Mavs Warriors a little later. So my biggest takeaway and... Again, this is going to seem extraordinarily obvious. It is obvious, but nevertheless, uh, just easy enough to see in the first two games of Celtics Heat how important Al Horford and Marcus Smart are. Yeah. There's, to the, there's the there's the overlap. <laughs> um, so I have talked about when Smart's out, how I feel like the Celtics almost miss him more on offense than on defense. Yeah, how are you feeling about know. that after game one? Well, I'm feeling actually really good about it. And I think, look, the, the important thing to note is that it's very obviously both. But I think these games are a really good illustration of the various ways in which what happens at those two ostensibly separate ends of the floor are actually very connected. Can I say I too think- that it's rare for a point guard if you want to call Mark Smart a pure point guard, to shoot 8 of 22 and be as positively impactful as he was offensively in that game? It is. I mean, that's the the wonder and the joy of Marcus Smart. Like, he is, uh, he's one of one. Like, just a really fascinating and unique player. So, to kind of get into what I mean by by them missing him more on offense, and and that being, that not precluding them from missing him a ton on defense also but I think you saw in that game too how his ball handling and playmaking really steadies the Celtics offense right like it allows Tatum and Brown to work off the ball more and to get more opportunities to catch the ball on the move or to catch it with an advantage and when game one really got away from the Celtics was in that third quarter where they just couldn't stop turning the ball over it was too much on Tatum and Brown's shoulders. They were overextended as lead creators. Tatum finished that game with seven turnovers. In game two, he only had three. In game one, the Celtics had 22 assists against 16 turnovers. In game two, they had 28 assists against nine turnovers. And that's just like a really rudimentary way to kind of illustrate how smart being back allowed them to organize their offense in a much more productive way. And then Horford too, his connective passing from the top of the floor, you know, like the ball reversals and his floor mapping ability, like the stuff that allows the Celtics to get the ball swinging from side to side, that was obviously sorely missed as well. And so that, even without delving into everything that Horford and Smart, you know, Smart, the the freaking defensive player of the year, right? Everything those guys can do at the defensive end, their offensive contributions alone make such a huge difference because in game one, a ton of Miami's offense was coming on runouts off of Celtics turnovers and missed shots. And sometimes the best defense can be a good offense. 
And so that in itself made a big difference for them. But to speak to just the half-court defense, I wrote about this, but Miami in game one produced a 112.2 offensive rating just on first shot half-court possessions, which was the highest number that Boston had allowed since December 3rd. Wow. And, you know, they managed that because for, for a few reasons. Like one of them was Boston was surprisingly, and I guess in some cases not that surprisingly, averse to switching in that game where, you know, they conceded a lot of pull-up space playing drop coverage. And you could see the logic in that a bit. You know, like for one thing, Miami was one of the worst pull-up shooting teams in the postseason coming into that game. Um, So challenging them to hit pull-up jumpers was kind of a sensible gambit. And then for another thing, like the Celtics, I don't think we're going to have Rob Williams switch out on the perimeter without Horford behind him to protect the rim and rebound. And then Tice was kind of taking a bunch of Horford's minutes. They weren't going to have him switch out just because he's not a good switch defender. And then Peyton Pritchard taking a bunch of smarts minutes. They weren't going to have him switch because he's by far their weakest individual defender and they wanted to keep him out of bad matchups. So that was part of it. Um, I, I did think there were other plays where like Grant Williams was guarding the screen and, you know, Tatum or Brown was guarding the ball and Boston was still playing a deep drop. And that made no sense to me. Because Grant Williams has been one of the best one-on-one defenders in the league this postseason, so like, why not like why not let him try his hand switching on to Jimmy Butler, who is cooking your defense that entire game, especially when you have someone like Tatum playing the other end of the pick and roll, and you'd be fine having him switch on to Bam at least temporarily until you can scram it out or something. Like, I that didn't make sense. But basically, you know, I thought they corrected some of that in game two. They definitely switched more. And they had smart back to take on a big chunk of the primary assignment on Jimmy. And I thought, you know, this was something I wanted to see them do more of in game one, just like mixing in more unders to keep the primary attached to Butler rather than having to put two on the ball or fight over or switch. Like at the end of the day, like, yeah, Butler can get into that 15 to 18 foot range and feel pretty good about his ability to knock down a mid ranger. But I, I still think like challenging him to do that rather than giving him a runway to the rim um, or a playmaking opportunities when you're putting two on the ball, I still think showing him a little bit more under coverage is a good idea. And I thought they did that more in game two. But I do think they switched more with Horford back. Uh, I think I actually was a bit surprised by how often they continued to drop, but him being back just allowed Rob Williams to be more active as a roaming helper. And then, you know, to your point about shooting variants, There's also just the fact that the Heat shot 13 for 24 on pull-up jumpers in game one and eight for 31 in game two. So, uh, you know, a lot of this can be explained away by just saying make or miss league. But I think uh, there were there were a lot of things in game one that Miami was able to to use to their advantage where, you know, not just Butler, but also guys like Hero, Oladipo, Gabe Vincent, like they made a point of running screening actions at the guys they knew the Celtics were reluctant to switch. And they just got a ton of good stuff by dragging Pritchard and Tice into action with Butler basically on either end, right? Handling or screening and just playing out of whatever advantage that created. Yeah. And I also think like when we talk about shooting variants for me in both these games, I don't see shooting variants as the reason Boston and Dallas, sorry, Miami and Dallas lost. I think 
both games would have been more competitive, you know, obviously, yeah, the shooting variance swung either way, but I still think Golden State and Boston did enough, clearly, where you can watch that game, come out with the observations we came out, and, and still see this is why they won. Uh, in my opinion, this is why both are actually the better teams on the whole compared to the teams they're playing against. It's just that the game would have been more competitive had Miami and, and Dallas shot anywhere near their usual levels. Now, in terms of my observation, yeah, there's overlap. It's pretty much what you said. My notes were uh, Celt, Smart, Horford, Rob Will, all on court again. Celtics defense looks too much for Lowryless Heat. Switching a lot. And then I even put Wolfon noted in game. I think you had tweeted it during game one that the, the, uh, the Celtics were not switching ball screens the way they usually do. And it's like, well, now... Go figure, Horford and, and Smart are on the court together and they're switching a lot, not everything, but switching a lot again and just completely giving the heat fits. Uh, noted Rob Williams back as a roamer. Um, they, the, the Celtics defense is just so good and they can beat you in so many ways. And again, without Lowry right now, or even if he does come back and he's a hampered version of himself, I just, I don't think the heat have enough weapons, but just enough potency within their offense. I mean, this is something we talked about with them all season, even as they marched toward the number one seed in the East and they did it resiliently through a lot of injuries. Like they, they're a great team, but even yet we talked all season about their offensive issues, their half court hindrance. And it's worse, obviously without Lowry or it's, the ceiling is a lot lower offensively without Lowry being the guy they thought he could be or a healthy version of himself at the very least. And then you put them against this defense and a, this defense that is now back to full throttle with all of Marcus Smart, Al Horford, and Rob Williams on the court again. And I think game two was a really good example of like, other than, sure, Jimmy stepping into some of those jumpers and just having the usual playoff scorcher that he has, what is their offense right now? Like, where is their offense consistently coming from? Not here or there it's going to be a slog for this team to try to score against this Boston defense. And I guess my bonus observation that I had written down was that to kind of tie the two together was if these series go the way I think they will, I think I had said Warriors in six and Celtics in seven. I think it will be super, 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 super fascinating to watch this Celtics defense against that kind of unpredictable Warriors offense that we talk about all the time with all of the off-ball movement, with all the weak side stuff, with all of the deception, with the weapons they had. I think if you want to talk, and, and you know, not to say anything bad about Boston's offense itself or Golden State's defense, but I'm just saying when you, like, if you want to talk about a finals matchup and like a matchup of two great units, like contrasting each other and trying to one-up each other, this Boston defense against that Golden State offense is like, if you're a basketball fan and a neutral that is absolutely salivating to think about. Yeah, well, it's interesting because if that is the finals, first of all, it would be the two best defenses in the league. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know how much you want to take regular season rankings into account. Like, maybe you don't actually feel this way about Golden State's offense, but just based on how they performed in the regular season... Golden State would actually be the worst offense that Boston will have played in this postseason if that's who they meet in the finals. Like all of Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and Miami had better offensive ratings than the Warriors did this season. So, but again, I I, I will say too, how many minutes did the Warriors' best lineups play together this season? Yeah, that's Eight? fair. But but could you not say that about all those other teams too? 
<laughs> Come on. Like, but, I, but, but no, no, but all those other teams weren't, didn't have their best lineups necessarily in the playoffs. Golden mm-hmm. State now has their best in the playoffs. What I'm like, after not being able to put up those numbers with those guys during the regular yeah, season, I see, they played fair. Brooklyn. They played Brooklyn, you know, a very diminished version of what Brooklyn should have been. They played the Bucks without Middleton. Obviously, we talked ad nauseum about that. They're now playing the Heat without Larry. Like, so I get what you're saying, all those teams, but the difference is the Warriors are now at full strength when they'll be playing them. Right. So, yeah, I mentioned the 112 offensive rating that Miami put up on first shot half court possessions in game one. In game two, that was down to 85. So obviously you can see the difference there, but again, like you can kind of circle back to the offensive stuff and how those two ends of the floor are connected. I mean, you want to talk about shooting variants, like the Celtics went 20 for 40 from three point range. Like that might not happen again in this series, but I would say just in smarts absence, the Celtics still had Derek white who can do a lot of the things that smart can do on defense. Uh, So you might say, well, you know, they should have just played white more and Pritchard less (laughs) in that game one, like Peyton Pritchard wound up playing 30 minutes. But the problem was white was giving them next to nothing on offense, like not providing spacing because the heat are basically ignoring him. He's not giving them dribble penetration. He's not giving them any advantage creation. So Pritchard had to play because he was actually giving them all of those things. Yeah. And can I, mean, can I just say one of my favorite moments of the playoffs so far is that in game one, early in game one, when the Celtics were actually kind of rolling, Peyton Pritchard, I think he had hit one shot, got the going to commercial break Mr. Big Stuff treatment. And I, 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 it was like one of the most jarring things I had ever seen. Conference finals were like, you can taste the finals. It's so close. And in the usual, like I think early second quarter, go to commercial break, on, I don't know if it was ESPN or TNT, when they do the Mr. Big Stuff song in the background, it was Peyton Pritchard. And I just, you you brought his name up and I had to bring that up because I was literally cackling to myself at home. Sorry, continue. Well, he's been good is the thing. And like, I know. that's that's I know. what I'm saying. Like they, they, again, the Heat got a lot of stuff, a lot of productive stuff out of attacking him, out of putting him in screening action in that game one. But the Celtics on balance were still way better with him on the floor than with white on the floor. Uh, and the reason for that, as I pointed out in the piece that I wrote was that in the 19 minutes they played with Pritchard on and white off, they had a 127.8 offensive rating compared to the 18 minutes they played with white on and Pritchard off where they had a 92.1 offensive rating. And then in game two, you know, white missed that game due to the birth of a child, which, you know, congrats to him and his family. Uh, But with Smart back and playing 40 minutes in his return from that foot injury, they were basically able to scale down Pritchard's minutes and more specifically, I think, keep him on the bench while Butler was on the floor. And uh, I think Smart's offensive assertiveness, especially in comparison to White, was just huge, where, you know, Smart missed nine of the first... (laughs) nine of the first 10 shots that he took in this game, but he keeps firing away with no hesitation and eventually settles in and finishes eight for 22 with 24 points. Whereas with white, I feel like he'll miss his first couple of shots and then disappear from the offense completely. So I think the ability to do that, to have smart play that many minutes and he overlapped with Pritchard a bit, 
and Pritchard was on the floor with Butler a bit. But for the most part, I feel like they were able to keep those two guys separate. And partially as a result of that, they were a plus 39 in the 23 minutes Pritchard was on the floor in game two. Like, that's pretty insane. So it's just, it's helpful to look at those things and think, like, yeah, Smart's the defensive player of the year. He obviously helps Boston immensely on defense. But let's not overlook his offensive contributions and also the ways in which those offensive contributions can help the team at the defensive end of the floor. 100%. I want to hear what you have to say about oh, Warriors-Mavs since we did jump from that to Celtics Heat. Uh, okay, I will get to that after we take a quick break. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Scores MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, you wanted to hear my big takeaway from Warriors Mavs. And I guess this is the last one that we have because we overlapped on Celtics Heat, right? So we only have the one left to talk about. Correct. Yes, because we both we both talked Celtics Heat. I talked Warriors Mavs. You haven't talked much Warriors Mavs yet. Okay, so my big takeaway from that game one is, you know, you mentioned or we talked a little bit about how Dallas had struggled to defend the Warriors offense. But I actually thought the bigger story from this game in spite of the shooting variance and and the cold night that Dallas had from three-point range, was the Warriors' defense. And my big takeaway was just Draymond Green, still the best defensive player in the league, and a defensive game plan basically unto himself. Because I thought he was the reason the Warriors were able to hold Luka and the Mavs' offense in check. And there were a lot of interesting things going on. One of them was... Draymond being Jalen Brunson's primary for a lot of the game and like his ability to do that and kind of keep a lid on the Mavs secondary creator as an on-ball guy while also blowing up so many Luka-centric actions with his help defense is just such an incredible luxury for the Warriors defense to have and you know, to your point, Brunson also missed like four or five wide, and I mean wide open threes, that if he'd knocked down, things would have looked different, I guess. But I just thought Draymond was magnificent and like all game long was just appearing, apparating into the middle of the floor, rotating, you know, to the nail. He would do that from the wing or from the corner. It didn't really matter where he was stationed at the top or the bottom. He was the guy that the Warriors were having help in the middle. And regardless, like the, I just felt like the, the Mavs couldn't really escape him no matter what they tried to do. It, uh, it put me in mind a little bit of like, <laughs> you know, like the, the, uh, the Seinfeld bit where Kramer's talking about marriage. Yeah. You know, yes. you wake up in the morning, she's there. She's there. Yeah. You go to bed from work. Yeah. She's there. It was like with Dallas's offense, you know, you drive middle, he's there. You slip yeah. a pocket pass to the roll man, he's there. You throw a skip pass to the weak side, he's there. Like 
anything they tried to do, he found a way to kind of blow it up. And he, he was such a singular defender and such a disruptive force at that end of the floor that I think that was the thing where coming into the series, I was like the, the reason, the one kind of factor that was nudging me towards picking Dallas over Golden State was I just don't know if in terms of like individual defenders, the Warriors can slow down Luka. But seeing what Draymond was capable of doing as a help guy in their coverages on Doncic changed my mind about that a little bit because I felt like whatever the Warriors wanted to do against Luka, whether it was playing show and recover to keep guys like Steph and Poole out of switches or switching Kevon Looney onto him, um, you know, or even when the Mavs switched things up and put Luka in the post, which had been really effective for them against Phoenix. All of that was survivable for the Warriors because of Draymond's help. You know, because I'll, I'll be honest, like a lot of the hedges from Steph and Jordan Poole were not very good. So th- this like, is what, when you mentioned the, the show and recover. I thought he, early in the game, they were doing that a lot. Where one of those guys would show and recover back and they weren't really blitzing or fully trapping them. And I thought that is when I went and did the rewatch, that is actually when the Mavs were getting their best looks because I really basically, whether it was Curry or Poole, wasn't doing a good enough job pressuring Luka. It was almost like a show for the sake of showing, but it wasn't actually accomplishing anything. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up a step late back to the shooter. So I actually thought early in the game when they were doing that is when the Mavs were producing their best three-point looks. And then they um, Golden State really started to vary with the defenses. Then they blitzed them a little bit. Then they went to zone. They did some box in one. Like, they switched a lot with Wiggins and Looney. But mm-hmm. early in that game, to your point, yeah, when they were showing, just showing and recovering with one of Poole or Steph, they yielded a lot of good three-point looks to the Mavs off potential Luka assists. To that point, like, they just... Showing for the sake of showing, like not actually doing a whole lot to impede Luca's progress. Like, yeah, you're staying out of the switch, but he's still turning the corner and getting into the middle of the floor. I just think I, I will give credit, you know, to Steph Poole, to all of the Warriors players, basically, for being able to snuff out advantages when it seemed like Dallas had created them, where the initial hedge might not have been very effective. But then Draymond steps up and behind that initial play, it's like just pinpoint scrambling where Draymond stepping up. So then Steph is peel switching onto Draymond's guy. And there's just like in sync rotations happening behind the play where no matter where Dallas swings the ball to, it seems like a Warriors defender is already in a shooter's lap. And I agree with you that that actually, I didn't think that was happening very much at the start of the game. At the start of the game, it was just Dallas missing open shots. But as that game went on, I thought they got fewer and fewer good looks as a result of the defense the Warriors were playing. It started with Draymond, but Steph, despite, you know, I didn't think, again, like I didn't think his show and recover work was particularly good, but his help defense was really good in this game. Mm -hmm. And I thought on balance, he actually, he was a positive defensively. But again, it just, um, I, I just think it all comes back to Draymond and his ability to quarterback those rotations. And like there was one play that I think it just encapsulated everything that he is capable of in terms of his basketball brain and his physical abilities where there was an end of quarter Mavs play where Dinwiddie was handling the ball up top and it was Frank Nilakina in the weak side corner 
guarded by Steph. And basically, uh, Draymond was guarding Finney Smith, who looped around the baseline to that weak side corner. And Draymond immediately knew exactly what was going to happen. So what he did is he stayed on the strong side to guard against the Dinwiddie drive. And whoever was guarding Dinwiddie on ball, again, I can't remember, was shading him toward that help where Draymond was standing. So predictably, Dinwiddie throws the skip pass to Finney Smith in the corner at the same time that Nilakina screens his own guy in Steph with like a pin-in screen. But Draymond's like already rotating out to the weak side corner while that passes in the air because he knew exactly what was going to happen and gets to the weak side corner in like the blink of an eye and blocks the Finney Smith three. And it's just... In spectacular that, fashion too. I mean, like that in one play is just... That's Draymond in a nutshell, man. Not only can he think one or two steps ahead of everybody else on the floor, but he still has the physical juice. Like he's moving really, really well right now, which isn't always the case with him, but he looks to be at the peak of his powers defensively. And I think that could be... I don't know if even calling it a wild card is the right thing to call it because it's more central than that. Like that is the central factor. I feel like that could swing this series in golden state's favor. Mr. 16, man, Mr. 16 game player again and again and again, proving it. Uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Draymond to me in terms of like pure basketball IQ and his ability to read and process and decision make based on what is happening in front of him, and the ability to like quickly react and not necessarily just have the game plan that you came in with in your head, but be able to like literally call an audible, sometimes not even in a way where your teammates can react to it, but just you go put out a fire because you see what's happening, as you said, two steps ahead. For me, it's on both ends of the court. It's Draymond Green, LeBron James, Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry, and I might even put Nikola Jokic in that in that mix now. But like to me, in terms of just like basketball genius, forget skill, physical ability, straight up basketball genius active players today those four or five guys are the guys and Draymond's right there with those basketball geniuses he is one um in, in terms of other stuff with the with the Warriors defense I do also want to like shout out Andrew Wiggins and Kevon Looney because yes obviously the Warriors defense is way more than one guy doing the work on Luka Doncic and you know you might not be able to get a ton of games like that for the Warriors where you're getting Wiggins to defend Luka Doncic the way he did. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, some of it maybe is fatigue based on the difference in how these teams came into this series. But credit Andrew Wiggins for what he did as the quote-unquote primary, we'll say, on Doncic, especially early in that game. And Looney, in that stretch when they were doing a lot of switching and Looney was ending up on Doncic, of course, yes, the fact that you have Draymond as a helper behind you does essentially fix everything or almost everything. But... To Wiggins and Looney's credit, there were a ton of possessions in that game where one and or both of them were the reason that the Mavs offense kind of sputtered out on a possession before Draymond even had to think of putting out a fire. So uh, a total team effort defensively from the Warriors. I wanted to ask you and you watching this game, do you think that the Mavs could have done a better job targeting Steph? And the reason I ask is because like, Steph is, I think he is an improved defender. I know there's been jokes about that. And even I can't remember who it was in, in a pre-series uh, question to him in a press conference, mentioned him being a two-way player. And even Steph laughed at that. Maybe wouldn't go that far, but I do think he's an improved defender. And I also understand that, for example, when he's on the court with Jordan Poole, Poole is the guy you're going to target, not Steph. And I think I went back and checked. It's like out of the 
the 34 minute or whatever it was that Steph played like 10 minutes and change were with him and Poole on the court together. But the vast majority of the night, Steph and Poole were not on the court. Like Steph's minutes were without Poole there. Now, the other argument could be, well, at this stage in their careers, Clay might be more targetable than than Steph is because of you know his lack of mobility or whatever. But even said all of that, I still think the Mavs could have and should have attacked Steph's defense a little more because even if you think, okay, he's improved defensively to the point where like you don't want to completely sell out and just attack him at all costs at the expense of like messing with the flow of your offense. I understand that. But I think you can still go at him more often than they did. Even like at the very least, just to get some extra miles on those, you know what I mean? Like tire him out a bit, uh, fatigue him in ways the Warriors are trying to fatigue Doncic, even if you don't think, okay, he's the weakest defender on the court. I thought they could have done that at least a little more in game one. But how? How would you attack him exactly? Yeah, I guess. I mean, who who was Steph guarding early in that game? Who, uh, who did they have I, Steph I think I think he was game? probably guarding Bullock, you know, or Finney yeah. Smith, like basically those guys because yeah. you had Draymond on Brunson. So a few things happened. I mean, one is I think they actually went at Steph a lot, but Steph I think was, it was just doing... Uh, sorry, I think the number was 14. I, th- I can't remember who I saw tweeted. I think it was 14 times they involved Steph in screen and roll actions. I'd be curious to know how, like, how many points did they get out of those fourteen possessions? And I, there are things that they could do better in terms of just like moving a little bit quicker to try and beat those Warriors rotations. But Steph does the show and recover thing, and like I said, sometimes the hedges are bad, and Luca gets into the middle, and they get good stuff out of that. Sometimes the hedges are good, and the Warriors are able to reset, and then you've just eaten a bunch of clock like trying to get a mismatch that you don't actually get. And we, we've we seen the Warriors do this time and again, right? Like if you watch any of those Warriors Rockets series, it was like over and over and over again. Pretty much every Rockets possession down was like Harden trying to get the switch on Steph. Steph show and recover. Harden tries to get the switch on Steph. Steph shows and recovers. Like same thing with LeBron in those Cavs series, right? Like this is not at all surprising. But I do think, I don't think we're not going to see that anymore. I think that probably Dallas went away from that because it wasn't really working for them. And again, I do think Steph, all told, had a a pretty good defensive game. But also, like Draymond's help makes putting two on the ball against Luka possible. And this is why, you know, when we were talking in the Memphis series about how I, I, I didn't actually didn't have a huge problem with how Golden State was defending Ja overall. But I did think they could afford to stop giving so many soft switches with like Steph and Poole switching on to Ja. And I thought that, you know, again, because they had Draymond back there, putting two on the ball wouldn't have been such a dicey proposition for them. And whether they just have like a more of a fear of Luka exploiting those mismatches because he's so much bigger, or whether they just realize that this is how they would rather play, they're just not giving those switches really anymore. So... I don't know. And and I think another thing is like having the Draymond on Brunson matchup allowed them to pre-switch some of that stuff where if Steph's guy, uh, you know, I I think it was Bullock a lot of the time. Like if he would come up to set a screen, they would just pre-switch and have Draymond come up and be involved in that action instead. And then Steph switches onto Brunson and that's a a survivable matchup for them at the end of the day. So. Um, in that situation, yeah, maybe you like just pitch the ball to Brunson and let him attack Steph one on one. But I don't think you want that to be like a, a central tenet of your offense. No, or maybe you do. And that's but, 
And that's what I'm saying. I definitely don't think they should be doing it at the expense of messing with their flow. Like, I don't think their entire offensive game plan should be attack Steph. I just thought, yeah, to your point, even if it is maybe just swinging the ball to the guy that's now been, that's on him, whether it's a Brunson or I don't know. I mean, Bullock isn't exactly creating for himself, but well, that's I the think thing. Were, and that's neither him nor Finney Smith is doing much of that, which is why right. I think the, the Warriors are very comfortable stashing Steph on those guys. And then honestly, even with Brunson, the, the Warriors are still playing show and recover to keep pool out yes. of the Brunson's the Brunson matchup. Like they, they have a healthy fear of Brunson as well. I think, and what he can do as a one-on-one player, like we saw that in the Utah series, but you know, I don't think if it's, if it's Steph, for instance, like Steph's not the turnstile that Donovan Mitchell is where he's just going to get roasted no. off the bounce by, by Brunson pool might, but they're making a point of keeping him out of that matchup, which I think is the right approach. All right, so we talked about our observations from these series. We've seen two games in Miami, Boston, one game of Dallas, Golden State. My question for you is, based on the observations we've seen, if you had to rank these four teams right now based on likelihood of winning the championship, Mm -hmm. how would you rank them? Boston, Golden State, Dallas, Miami. Wow, okay. I would go Golden State, Boston, Miami, Dallas. Yeah, fair. But we both have have Boston and Golden State as yes. one and two right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I again just want to like make it clear. I, I won't be surprised if Dallas gets back in the series, makes it a series, wins the series. Like I think they're still capable of doing that. And I don't think even if Golden State comes out and dominates again in game two, just like we saw in the Phoenix series, like Dallas is more than capable of making adjustments and getting to a point where the games are being played more on their terms. But I also thought, you know, as somebody who was kind of painfully undecided on what the outcome of the series was going to be, I think that that game one was clarifying to me in a couple of important ways. And the stuff I talked about with Draymond was probably the most important one. So if uh, if you're good to leave that there, then we can move on to a fan shout out, which I will kick yeah. it over. Wow, to you don't you up. don't want to talk about the Scarborough shooting stars signing J. Cole in the Canadian <laughs> Elite Basketball League. Um, all right. Shout out Scarborough. Um, fan shout out. So I had a fan shout out planned. We're going to end up doing two and I'll tell you why. The first fan shout out goes to Luke Opst out in Eckville, Alberta, says he's been listening on and off since the early days around episode five, back uh, when Will Lou was in the mix. Says he misses Will Lou a lot. We all do. Luke was going to be the fan shout out for today. And the reason I'm saying there's now two is because while we were doing this, I got a email from Ryan Walchuk. And Ryan emailed, uh, ironically enough, while we were recording to say that he is at the old Kanye on the score app, who I shouted out at the end of last episode and said, hit us up, you know, if you can with your real name and all that, and we'll, we'll get you a proper shout out. He was the one that commented he loves the show and all our analogies, but he didn't know what a Fugazi was. So at the end of the last episode, I shouted out at the old Kanye on the score app, told him what a Fugazi was, thanked him for support. But Ryan actually emailed now while we were recording today, says he's listening from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, but he'll be moving to Philadelphia for school next month. Well, you can, uh, you can say hi to most valuable Philadelphian, Joel Embiid, who received that order from Philadelphia City Hall. God, I remember when Philadelphia was an intimidating sports town. Um, anyway, uh, Ryan says he's excited to see the scores 
non-unanimous 2022 NBA All-Star James Harden in person next week once he signs an extension or re-signs with the Sixers. Says he's been listening for over a year and a half. He's never missed an episode. He's gone back and listened to many of the older episodes. He enjoys all the analogies and metaphors, the use of advanced and sometimes obscure statistics to bolster our opinions. And he's really enjoyed the non-basketball talks during the early COVID days. He is such a fan of the show and of the analogies that he's shouted out multiple times. He even sent me a list of his favorite all-time Pound the Rock uh, metaphors and analogies. His top two, me on Lakers management when I said uh, there were too many, when I was about to say there were too many chefs in the kitchen and said, actually, it's like there are a bunch of people crowded around the stove and none of them is actually a chef. Um, And his number one Pound the Rock favorite analogy or metaphor was Wolf on on the 2020-2021 Timberwolves saying uh, the place where their bread is buttered, sorry, the place where their bread is supposed to be buttered isn't actually going to be all that buttery. So shout out to Wolf on for Ryan's favorite ever pound the rock analogy or metaphor. So anyway, Ryan, thanks for reaching out after uh, your kind of half shout out on the last show. Luke, thank you for reaching out and your continued support and the usual call out to all of our listeners. Whether you're a first time listener or this is listen number 243 for you, reach out on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfon at the score.com, joseph.cacharo at the score.com. Find me on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. Maybe find me at a Scarborough shooting stars game with, uh, no, I... Actually, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not even the biggest J. Cole fan, but I do think it's not just good for the CEPL, but it's actually just really good for Scarborough. Bring some positive glow to the greatest city's greatest borough. Can he actually play, though, is the question? I mean, he must well, be he, able to so if he got he, a contract. He, but So he is, he is uh, for a non-professional, very good. And he played early on, uh, you know, kind of as a publicity stunt in, was it the first week of the uh, Basketball, Basketball Africa, Africa League? Yes. Um, so he, he can play and I think at least hold his own in a setting, but like, I don't anticipate that he's actually going to be part of the team forever. Like this guy's not going to be missing out on tour dates and stuff to play in the Canadian <laughs> elite basketball league. I, I would imagine he plays like one or two games if that, but still publicity wise, it's good for a smaller league, especially, you know, a league that maybe in the States people don't know about, but that is starting to recruit some talent. And like I said, it's just, it's great for Scarborough. And in that case, I, I hope it goes well. He should just rearrange his his tour around playing in the cities uh, of the CEBL, you know, just right. like make so, a whole tour well, around if, playing in, uh, you know, Niagara River and Hamilton, Saskatchewan. Yes. I'm um, sure J. Cole's publicity team would love that. Anyway, um, why don't we put a bow on this and sign off for now? Uh, I wanted to point out, so we got a long weekend here in Canada which means our early episode next week will probably be coming on Wednesday rather than Tuesday. And I'm I think, not I think next week's a once a week week, right? Yeah. I think we'll probably only have one, one episode for the short week next week. So uh, just a programming note to let you guys know that, but uh, we will be back at some point next week to talk to you about whatever happens in the conference finals between now and then. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode and our takeaways from the first three games and we'll talk to you all soon. 